Hi, and welcome to Talking With Cancer. I'm Katie, and I'm here to give you an honest, real, and even funny outlook on living with cancer. There is no one way to do cancer, and I've decided to share my story to help and inspire others, as well as raise awareness. At age 43, I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer known as hobnail in February 2022, having never had any health issues previously. I was fit and well and took pretty good care of myself. But despite that, I got a diagnosis and I am on a long-term treatment plan. On this podcast, I will be sharing my progress regularly. And I often speak to amazing guests who've been impacted by cancer in some way. I really hope you enjoy listening. And if you do, then please rate, review, follow and recommend the pod. Good morning. It's an early one for me, a really early one. I, I haven't interviewed or done recorded the podcast before 10 o'clock a.m. before, but my guests today are professionals. And so I guess, you know, they had a working day that they needed to crack on with. So we chatted earlier this morning and it was a really great chat. I learned a lot actually from speaking to them. They're so positive and upbeat about what they do. The guests I have on today, Naman Julka Anderson and Joe McNamara, are both therapeutic radiographers. And they are also the hosts of the brilliant podcast Rad Chat, which is the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. It's a brilliant, brilliant resource to learn everything and anything about radiotherapy, but also oncology, because as they explain, the work that they do is the only profession in that medical world where they learn everything there is to know about oncology. So they are really all-encompassing and all-knowing. And they really love what they do. It was just so refreshing to speak to health experts, professionals who are so positive about their work. Because I think, you know, obviously they did touch on the struggles that exist within the NHS, but we very often only hear that side of things, don't we? But for them, I think what they love is the range and variety of what they see and do, who they work with, how they work. I'll let Naman explain. He does very well explaining really quite the variety of the job a bit later on in the interview. But yeah, what struck me in particular is how passionate they are about the patient relationship, which is just lovely. And it reminds me that, you know, that's something I kind of pride myself on. I've definitely built really special relationships with my medical team and you know a year and a half into my diagnosis and I feel like a lot of them know me now you know I go for my bloods every month and I know the nurse there Amanda really well obviously my CNS team who are amazing I know all of them they're lovely nurses and of course like you know my consultants and oncologists and it is a very personal 
and personable relationship. It's something I'm going to be speaking about actually on a panel at the nursing live event in November. They contacted me to say, you know, would I come on and talk about what it's like as a patient to interact with nurses? And, you know, part of what I said to them was like, it's a two-way relationship. That for me is what works. And that's really is how I feel about it. It might not work for everyone, but definitely in the case of Joe and Naman, you can tell that that is really a big part of what the job is for them, what keeps them passionate about what they do. I was quite interested with the stat that 60% of cancer patients will have radiotherapy. That's really a lot. So this is a treatment that is used really commonly with all different types of cancer patients. I myself have had radiotherapy, which I've talked about before. So yeah, it was great to chat to them and to learn a little bit more. So I'm gonna play that out for you now. Hi, it's lovely to have you both. I haven't done an interview with a double act before. <laughs> we, we joke that we can't go anywhere at any professional events without each other now. Really? You're always on tour together? That we is... have to also stand on the correct side because of our logo. Yeah. Oh, my God. And the worst, the worst thing, Katie, is we also have lots of different jobs and we have, therefore, separate email accounts. And the amount of times I go to write Joe and Nam. <laughs> no, I can't do that. I'm not in rad chat mode. So, yeah, it's, oh. it's like the ant and deck of the podcasting world. <laughs> I'm seriously impressed because you do have serious jobs, proper full-time jobs, which is why we're speaking at 8.30 in the morning, which I have to say for me, that's, that's the first. <laughs> Thanks for getting up early for us. <laughs> Yeah, I've already had three voice notes from Joe so far today. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, I used to be an early riser and then all that changed in the last year and a half since my diagnosis. It's like, I just need sleep. But yeah, that's, well, going back to you guys as a double act, how did you meet in the first place? I'm interested to know. So I was part of a different podcast before where Joe actually came on as a guest a long time ago. And the person I did it with didn't want to be involved anymore because of personal reasons. So I did it for a bit by myself and realised actually it's quite a lot of work. So then I called up Joe and we we worked together for Radio Therapy UK charity. So we did a lot of things through COVID to support patients and getting the right information out there. I just texted Joe uh, and then, yeah, she'll joke as to what the real reason was. Katie, he wanted my... I'm older than Numen by 10 or so years. And I always joke that he just wanted my filofax, my index of contacts. Having been a therapeutic radiographer 25 plus years, I was like, oh, I, I know a few people. And I'd recently done a National Macmillan Fellowship. And I always joke about the fact he just wanted my contact list. <laughs> Pure networker. Yeah. Man. <laughs> Smart though, very smart. But did you feel, because I guess you, you'd obviously been guests on podcasts, but had you done any hosting or anything like that before, Joe? Well, I'm a senior lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University, so not necessarily podcasting, but I was definitely used to interviewing people, definitely used to kind of connecting, building a really quick rapport with people, you know, educating. I wasn't shying away from talking which again helped me a lot with podcasting but I have to say the learning curve was huge I think a lot of people especially these days where podcasting is much more accessible you know 
millions upon millions of podcasts exist now and I think sometimes there's a perception that it's easy and it's really not and especially when you're in the world of oncology because it's quite scary putting yourself out there as a healthcare professional where we're really told not to engage with social media not to kind of put your head above the parapet and so it's a scary transition from that side of the fence to essentially putting yourself out there which I feel and I'm sure Numan will give his own perspective on it but for the patients and that's ultimately why we do what we do and why we do try and kind of really gear ourselves up to shout about our profession and potentially what patients want to hear about. Why are you told not to do that? Why is that something that's kind of in the culture of the medical profession, do you think? I think it's confidentiality. You know, we all take oaths in our own kind of way for our professions to put patients first. Putting ourselves out there, we want to make sure everything is scientifically sound. So obviously COVID pandemic is an example. Lots of people on social media talking about the vaccine, but not having any evidence. But obviously oncology is a very, I mean, radiotherapy especially is a very fast moving environment. I think I've been qualified six years this year. Joe's obviously been around a little bit longer, but things have changed a lot in that time. And even what I learned at university, some of that isn't valid anymore. Yeah, exactly. As Joe said, I think at the beginning, when we first started to get noticed, I suppose we were only in the UK, and then suddenly it was starting to be other countries across the world. Our radiotherapy healthcare sphere is very different to other places. To other places, we are technically button pushers. But here in this country, you know, we can prescribe medications, we can do all sorts of different things. So talking about that from a championing perspective for our role. Yeah, I think I agree with Joe. There's a lot of pressure because you think if you say something wrong, we did used to get lots of messages saying, oh, you've said it this way. This is what we would have said. But I think after a while, I don't know, we've just embraced it, haven't we, Joe? Just turn up. Yeah. Or can try and put the patient voice first. That's all we care about. I've been in Joe's lectures and she's convinced me to become a lecturer now, repaying her. Brilliant. Uh, book. <laughs> so that's all it is, is we want to get the patient voice out there because ironically, we don't haven't used that enough. It's only in the past six months, a year clinical trials, projects are now thinking, oh, actually, we need to do co-design with patients. But it's something we've always talked about anyway in the past. I find that disconnect between the patient and the medical profession so strange because, like you say, you know, there's so much knowledge sharing and there should be so much more collaboration between those two parties. It just seems like... That is the perfect double act in a way. And because prior to my diagnosis, I was not someone that was particularly immersed in the medical world in the sense that I never really had any health issues. I wasn't, you know, didn't really find myself in that space. And so when I did, to me, it was very natural to form these interpersonal relationships because it has to work two way, you know. The medical team has to know what my needs are. And I have to understand that they're people as well. I find that really important in my experience. And I say that a lot. Like, doctors are people. You know, they get stuff wrong and they might not. You know, they have different personalities. Some you might really gel with and others you might not. You know, and you have to find the right one for you in a way. That self-advocating is huge. It's something I talk about a lot. And also we get ill as well. That's something to point out, especially in oncology. We've all been touched in some way. 
Well, interestingly, Joe, you were saying you had thyroid cancer. I did. I so I had follicular carcinoma three years ago now. I'd previously had lots of medical interventions. I've always suffered with polycystic ovaries, endometriosis. My gynecologist was my best friend for a number of years. I also went through lots of rounds of IVF to conceive with my son Noah. And so I'd always kind of had that patient perspective, but there is something very different about cancer. And I think, especially from doing the podcast, you know, I'm definitely a different healthcare professional to before I started this podcast, because I've learned so much from patients. But I also recognize with having that cancer diagnosis, just how it changes you as a person. And, you know, I'm really lucky because my thyroid cancer was caught incidentally really early. It was stage three, so it sounds like it was quite progressed, but actually in terms of kind of thyroid cancer, I was really lucky. But being told you have cancer, my oncologist laughs at me because actually I kind of did a bit of a cheer when he said, oh, you've got cancer. Because I was like, yes, I can be a patient for my students. I can really give a real life patient perspective and he was like you're very strange joe but i did i kind of embraced it and i was absolutely fine i remember my husband was walking around tesco and i didn't tell him like lee and i are really close and we talk about everything i didn't tell him that i was going for a biopsy and he didn't really think anything of it and i'd been for a few because they couldn't get a good enough sample and so i just rang him and he was in tesco's and i just said oh just to let you know and yeah they've told me i've got thyroid cancer and he just went what and he just he says he started crying and i was really shocked by the reactions of the people around me because i was fine i was like no it's fine you know it's thyroid cancer i'll be absolutely fine whereas everyone else was like oh my god joe's got cancer and i don't think it was until afterwards where you kind of start living your life again and everyone forgets that you've had cancer and actually you're living with the side effects of treatment. So I had my thyroid taken out. So taking something as simple as thyroxine, actually I find really difficult because I hate taking medication every day. My weight is really fluctuated. My fatigue is all over the place. They can't ever get my levels right. So yeah, I think it's the challenges of what happens afterwards. And that is something that I kind of connect very much with when we have patients on the podcast. A lot of patients are talking about that more and more. Well, it seems, but maybe that's because I'm in that world now about that almost that rehabilitation after you've been cleared of cancer. And, you know, there's not really a lot out there about that and I know like Rosamond Dean who I'm interviewing for example I think you guys went to her book launch didn't you you know that's what she's written about and I think it must be I don't know I don't know if I'll ever know but it must be really hard to kind of transform yourself back when you've been through such a huge thing you know and probably the shock of it as well when you've been through the motions and then you kind of stop for a minute I guess I'm guessing. Naman didn't you have a scare as well? Ages ago, I think, because I cycled a lot in London, apparently it's to do with the pollution. They thought I might have had throat or maybe larynx or throat cancer. So I went on the two-week weight pathway. Not a nice experience. The fentanyl was great. I had a really good sleep. But yeah, I just remember being woken up mid-procedure and them saying, you haven't got cancer. And then going back into being all groggy and under sedation. And then they wouldn't let Katie in. 
they just wouldn't let her through the door at all because she didn't bring her ID, but it was also COVID. And they just said, yeah, you haven't got cancer. We need you to leave in about 10 minutes. So I was like, just working up from sedation. And some one of the other nurses said, yeah, well, you're too young to get cancer anyway. Like, it, it doesn't really affect young people. I was like, it definitely does. I work in oncology. There are people younger than me who I've seen die. And mm. uh, yeah. Not a well, nice experience. Not a nice experience, the waiting for the results. It, often people say that's like the hardest time or the very beginning of being told you have cancer is like the hardest time for a lot of people. But the young thing, I was listening to your interview with Chris of Copperfield. Amazing, amazing work that she's done. Incredible kind of awareness raising and her charity is just done incredible things but you know the point being that she was 23 when she got diagnosed with breast cancer and it took a while to get the diagnosis and I talked to Anisha Patel doctors get cancer too exactly about this point that you're saying you know that doctors get cancer too I love that handle because I think it's just so simple but it's so true and we do forget that I think there's something in the UK as well about the medical profession putting them on a pedestal there's something a bit old-fashioned about that about the status of your doctor you know and you had to almost dress up to go to a doctor's appointment and I think with things like your podcast you know it's like really great at kind of moving on from those times isn't it do you know what Katie the funniest thing is when you have a patient and you're talking to them and they're like oh you know I'm really struggling with this you know my mental health has really deteriorated or I think I've got symptoms from this drug and you're like okay you absolutely need some interventions let's talk to the doctor patients will walk in to see the doctor and the doctor will go right so how are you doing and they're like yeah I'm fine and you do like a double take and you're like no you're not you're not fine and that for me absolutely epitomizes what you've just said is that for some reason patients don't always feel that they can communicate with their doctors because they should be thankful i'm really thankful i know how busy everyone is i don't want to cause any trouble and yet i suppose as therapeutic radiographers we're in such a unique position where we get to really build a rapport with our patients every single day sometimes up to eight weeks worth of treatment And it's perfect for them to be able to really kind of open up about how they're feeling and what they're experiencing. But it does then make me laugh when they're like, no, no, I'm absolutely fine. I can do this. I'll just cope. Amazing. Yeah, you see those different sides. And I see it as well with um, often with nurses. They can have a bit of a laugh with me. And, you know, I encourage that. I like that connection. But as soon as the consultant is around, it's, it's something a bit more, you know, all the, the headmistress is in the room. We've got to behave, you know. So it, it happens, I guess, in the industry as much as like with patient to consultant. Now, I wanted to ask you about the patient because my experience of what was really interesting, how I came across you guys, is that someone I know who actually who interviewed me but also works with Mary Daly, the Cancer Education UK, who I interviewed as well, wrote to me and said, told me about your podcast. And I had just come out of a meeting with my oncologist about having radiotherapy. And I felt very in the dark about it. It was actually just something she kind of threw out there as an option, but we didn't really go into it. So I listened to quite one of your early, early episodes, and it was so timely and so helpful. So that was amazing. But what was interesting when she told me about your podcast was I thought that's such a specific subject. 
it's probably like just a few episodes. <laughs> That's the podcast. Do you know how some people, you know, there's initiatives to kind of bring out a series, which is just, you know, five or ten. But it's going on and on and on. It's amazing. You cover so much ground. It's brilliant. So there's loads, obviously, to talk about under the umbrella of radiotherapy. But you touched on patient relationships. My experience of radiotherapy is I went for one treatment. So there's not really the opportunity to build a relationship in that. Can you talk to me about how that relationship develops and how you need that relationship, I suppose, in what you do? I think because it's cancer, obviously, it's one of the toughest times anyone's going to be going through. It's not something you expect. You're not going to go to school and prepare yourself to have cancer, that sort of thing. So for us, building a rapport, it makes people more comfortable. And I think it makes our jobs easier as well, selfishly, because if patients like me, I know that I'm doing a good job. So if they don't like me, then I'll work harder to make sure that I'm giving them all the information they want or get them the support they need. Because ultimately, if I'm ever in that situation, I'd want the healthcare professional. And I'm sure Joe would say the same thing. If you're in that position ever, you want it that same kind of relationship back. I think we're getting a bit of a bad rep with delays and stuff at the moment, but we're always going to be there. We're always there to do what we can despite it. I think we've started to put a tea trolley out because we keep getting delayed so often in radiotherapy. <laughs> but it's little touches like that which do help. And I think... We see patients for such a long time doing their cancer treatment. Well, I think 60% of patients will have radiotherapy at some point in their cancer pathway. We can have see them at any point of their journey. So it might be at the beginning, maybe if they've had some metastases, unfortunately, we might see them 10, 15 years down the line. I've treated a patient who I think now he has died, but we treated him, I think, on eight different parts of his body over about four years. Yeah, just because that's the power of radiotherapy. It's quite a cheap treatment, but... We worked in millimeter accuracy. So I think we're always going to shout about it, aren't we, Joe? We're just not known enough. And we're always in a dark, dirty bunker in the bottom, <laughs> bottom of a hospital somewhere. I wouldn't necessarily advertise dirty. <laughs> Depends how old they the are hospital is. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe tired and worn out in HS. But yeah, I think yeah. we're in such a privileged position. And Katie, you mentioned kind of it is such a specific genre. It is, but people don't know about it. So we get so many patients who just come across us accidentally, which is why we're trying so hard to get out there. If anyone's got any tips on how we can reach people at the start of their oncology journey, then please do let us know. Because people say, oh, you've got to have radiotherapy. And the initial response is, what's radiotherapy? Or what's radiation therapy? You know, people don't necessarily know. And even on the curriculum for GCSE, when they talk about radiation treatments they always talk about gamma knife stereotactic radio surgery which is a very specific type of radiation treatment and so actually even the general public knowledge is quite poor about what it actually entails but trying to get the message out there like i've been doing recruitment activity for universities nationally for years and years and years and still therapeutic Joe has trained majority of the therapeutic black course for the past 20 years anytime I've been to a conference or I've met someone they're like oh yeah I know Joe she trained me and I'm like you've retired how has she trained you <laughs> yeah I'm that old I'm that old it's true nobody knows about us there's a real workforce shortage because people don't necessarily even think at the age of 14 oh I really want to be a therapeutic radiographer it just doesn't exist so using the patient voice is so important for us. I can't emphasize it enough, not only just for us to improve practice and service, 
but actually the patient voice can really help us. I did a piece of research and 40% of people who entered the profession came in because their family member or friend said, oh, I was treated by a really lovely therapeutic radiographer. And that's a huge percentage. So people need to know what we are and what Mm. we do. Okay, so there needs to be more awareness, but that seems to be the case, like in so many areas of cancer, because when my father got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, for example, which was like 17 years ago or more that he got this diagnosis, it wasn't really known that much. And I remember actually like trying to find some support and some of these support groups would say, well, we don't actually support people that are affected by pancreatic cancer. And it was like, okay, now what I understand is that cancer is like a huge umbrella and it's too broad a term almost for what we're dealing with. There's so many different areas, aren't there? With your work and with that patient relationship, are you also kind of seeing the results? Because from what I understand, so I've had this one treatment and I will have a scan in July because anyway, I have to keep getting monitored every three months or so. And that scan will obviously show, I assume that it will also show like how that area has been affected by the radiotherapy, but it takes time, doesn't it? So are you also on that side of things? Are you also on the reporting side as well as actually monitoring the treatment and administering the treatment? A mixture. So I think there's so many different roles within therapeutic radiography. So before anyone has their treatment, we'd always give them like a CT scan to have them in the right position. So that would be like the pre-treatment team, but that encompasses, you know, five plus different roles. So you've got physicists, dosimetrists, are the people who plan the treatment, pre-treatment radiographers, and the treatment side, which obviously Joe and I would have started off our careers in. And the tattoo artist, who does that? That's the pre-treatment team, yeah, the tattoo artist. Semi-permanent tattoos, very small. You're not getting a dolphin or anything like that, I promise, if anyone's listening to this. Although we <laughs> you get would not want me to do any artwork with a tattoo needle, I promise you. <laughs> And then, um, yeah, the treatment side, obviously, there's so many areas of it. And we can also be consultant radiographers, so we can consent people for treatment, plan their treatments. But so my role encompasses treatment review. So if you have any side effects, so psychosocial, physical, anything, I would be your kind of first port of call during your treatment. So for radiotherapy, very similar to the role of a clinical nurse specialist, except you might see me almost every day in the department. I can do all sorts of things, but I could also go and jump on the linear accelerator to deliver the treatment if I had to. So I think that's quite nice from our role. And obviously I'm biased because I love that part of the job, but get to see patients, talk to them, talk to their families, give them all the info, but also the follow-up care. So I think Joe can talk about prehab, rehab a bit more, but following the the people through, you know, patients will come back to us because side effects can continue for up to six weeks sometimes, if not more. So especially like fatigue or tiredness, that can continue for longer, but I'll have patients call me back or email me. Um, I quite like email now because then if you call, you can never get through to us. There's like four or five different layers and then you leave a message and then we might not get the message. But um, contacting people back, talk about side effects or get them back in just to have a chat. It's that reassurance, I think, because I think that's kind of what you alluded to is when people finish treatment, there's not always anything there afterwards until your follow-up. And even then your follow-up might just be a telephone, which is three minutes, four minutes, Um but yeah, I think that's where the role of us as therapeutic radiographers, you're kind of our responsibility if you've had radiotherapy. Until you've been discharged from our service, which is your follow-up or your follow-up scan, it is our responsibility. I'm not trying right. to give us more work, but we are there to support you. We're the experts in radiotherapy. We know we can look at your treatment plan, what part of body we've treated, why you're getting a certain side effect, 
we have the power to do it and we should be the ones that you come to not saying the clinical nurse specialists aren't great but we're the experts yeah i think we need to work closer with them to be able to deliver that kind of follow-on care yeah so it's really a holistic approach to that i had unbelievable exhaustion which i wasn't expecting phoned my clinical nurse specialist and she said look because you're on treatment as well as having had the radiotherapy it's almost a bit of a double whammy how common is that how common is it for someone to come and have radiotherapy who might be on chemo or targeted therapy like me it's really common so radiotherapy is amazing at being utilized in lots of different situations so some patients may have radiotherapy at the very start of their cancer pathway to initially shrink a tumor and then they would go on to have surgery and maybe then chemotherapy whereas other patients may have no radiotherapy at all until 20 years later when maybe a metastatic um, lesion appears or potentially if they go on to develop a new primary cancer. So radiotherapy can be utilised in lots of different situations and scenarios and every site specific is different, which I think is one of the challenges. I think for patients quite often, exactly like you said about your dad, when you get a cancer that isn't very well known or a lot of the population get that kind of cancer it's really challenging so if you read one of the macmillan books sometimes they're like 30 pages long they're amazing but they are big books and the reason is is they're trying to give the information for every single potential circumstance which just isn't really achievable which is why obviously through RadChat, we're trying to use the social media channels to help educate. So if a patient had prostate cancer, what is the likely pathway in things? But yeah, radiotherapy is brilliant at being utilized in lots of different circumstances. And what is the commonest side effect? Is it exhaustion, fatigue? I would say tiredness. I'm not gonna take this away from Jo because she loves radiobiology, but on a cellular level, If you imagine if there's cancer cells and normal cells in an area that we're treating, the cell cycle, every cell will be in a slightly different area within that cell cycle. So as we damage a cell that has cancer with radiation, the DNA gets damaged. I'll let Joe explain a bit more after this. But once it's damaged, you know, ultimately the body will remove that dead cell from the body. But that takes a lot of energy to do as it normally does anyway when, you know, you're breathing, sleeping, whatever. If there's any normal cells within the area, they get damaged, but your body needs energy water food whatever to replenish it and get them working back to normal both of those mechanisms together that's the tiredness so actually from radiotherapy we call it the therapeutic window which is as soon as if i had treatment right now for the next six hours those two mechanisms work the hardest that's why people will find that straight after treatment they're usually a lot more tired than they are otherwise joe you can get your nerd on now (laughs) i don't want to turn people off katie's podcast episode but yeah, I would also say as well, not just from the radiobiology perspective, but I think mentally as well, attending radiotherapy, I don't know about you, Katie, because it was a one-off, but the logistics of going to any hospital appointment is exhausting. So, you know, getting parked, where do you, where do you, where do you pay? You don't use coins anymore. You have to get your registration. How many times do people not know their registration? I have to go back every time and take a photo. I'm like, oh, not again. I need to learn my registration. But all of that is actually mentally draining. So when you've got patients who are attending every single day, apart from the weekends, we get weekends off in radiotherapy, but if they're attending every single day, 
for eight weeks is exhausting. So absolutely, your the radiobiology is taking the hammering. But I would also say logistically, mentally, emotionally, for a lot of patients, radiotherapy is the end treatment after surgery, chemotherapy, and they're exhausted. So when we talked to Roz um, for her book, we said, you know, it's, it's usually the fact that it's the latter end of the treatment pathway. And that's where you're lying on a treatment couch reflecting because when else do you ever just lie and just have to keep still and just think about things? It's really challenging. So I think it's everything. It's all encompassing. But the research now suggests that fatigue is a much bigger issue than we ever thought it was. And that's where the role of exercise and it's something that Numan and I promote really actively through the podcast but you know that prehabilitation and rehabilitation is so so important now and it's good that there's a buzz within the healthcare teams to really try and promote the role of exercise and it's hard isn't it especially when you do have fatigue and there is a big difference between being tired and being fatigued I think when I say to my husband I'm tired he's like yeah I'm a bit tired as well I'm like no I'm medically tired (laughs) I'm fatigued so um yeah I always top trump him on that one (laughs) so what are the things I don't know if you can really bear all what are the frustrations in your sector and what are the things that you love about it what's some of the pros and cons I love patients and family members now that we can have people within hospitals to an extent with COVID rules and stuff it's just nice to have family members in for talks so I think again because we work in a bunker it's not always easy to call a family member but during COVID, definitely FaceTimed a lot of people while I was with their person going through treatment and trying to explain everything. It was a weird time. But yeah, the best part is always going to be the patients for me. I think the students, I had good and bad experiences as a student going through it. It's a hard thing to want to go into because, you know, as you're a junior person, you might not maybe experience those kind of difficult conversations. I've had a lot of emergency situation, difficult conversations as a student, but I loved it because it's you're there for them. Patients are, yeah, they know that you're going to support them and help them. I think the hardest part of the moment is trying to catch up with the delays and lack of motivation for workforce. Just that, the general NHS negativity at the moment, unfortunately, but I still love my job. Joe, pros and cons, babes. Do you know what? I think it's the best profession. And for me personally, I feel privileged to be able to call myself a therapeutic radiographer. So I think what we're able to do as a therapeutic radiographer has got to be a bonus. Unfortunately, it's probably because there's a lack of clinical oncologists as to why our scope of practice has got bigger so quickly over the years. But I also think that that has helped demonstrate all the knowledge and skills that we have. I think a lot of people just think of therapeutic radiographers and maybe even diagnostic radiographers as those professions that kind of just take a picture or just quickly take press a button but actually there's so much that goes on behind the scenes and as therapeutic radiography students they learn everything about oncology like we're the only profession in the whole of the medical professions that specialize purely in oncology and that's just a huge privilege the impact that we get to make to patients lives can be really impactful. I've walked around a shopping centre before and someone's come up and given me a hug and I'm like, who are you? And it's because I treated them. It's That's amazing. Yeah, That's so it's, rewarding. It's amazing. It's horrible to think that I didn't remember them. 
but it just goes to show the impact that you can make to someone else's life and it is it's the most privileged position you will ever get to be in i think the hard things at the minute is workforce challenges so people are leaving the profession we're struggling to recruit into the profession so i think that that's the most challenging thing at the moment but i think if you were to get any therapeutic radiographer onto your podcast katie i think they would say the same as us which is it's an amazing profession to go into we're in a really privileged situation we get to make a big impact to people's lives and i think it's something that we hopefully through rad chat can share and promote but also realize from a patient's perspective that we are there for them so patients who've had radiotherapy if ever you are like i've got no one to talk to i've got all of these issues i don't know who to call call your radiotherapy team is that find, because find out what supermarket they go to and find them the <laughs> and harass them down the aisles but is that because it always works you know what's lovely is sort of how upbeat you are about it and how positive you are about it but obviously i know that in your industry you know there's a lot of mental health issues amongst particularly nurses who are seem to be overstretched that seems to be the kind of general consensus so do you find it so rewarding because it's such an effective treatment does it always work are there times where it's it's really difficult and a real struggle emotionally for you I think majority of the time if we're treating patients radically so for a cure it is very effective but also it is effective in palliation or supportive care so if people need it for pain relief or symptom management or stopping bleeding it does work you know radiotherapy can be very effective I think obviously you mentioned about nurses and mental health issues I think even before the pandemic there's always been issues within oncology because again you know we get taught by lecturers like Joe, don't get too attached to your patients, but you fall in love with people and their personalities because you see them every single day. Patients will come in at the start of treatment very down, not feeling great. And then by the end, because you've built that rapport, almost part of you contributed to improving their mental health to help them, support them, guide them through their treatment. And I think, yeah, like I've struggled with anxiety, probably more from the pandemic where you didn't know who was going to be coming in because of sickness or what was going to happen the next day. And I had to take some time off. And I think I know at least 30, 40 people who've had to do that across the country. And it's normal, but it's made me a better person and brought me back. And doesn't mean I don't get it. I just know what the triggers are now. I think our profession is you could be talking to a head and neck patient about artificial saliva, how they can have better oral sex, and then talking to the next patient about um, having diarrhea and how they've you know, soiled themselves to helping a carer who's just lost their loved one. Like it's so varied and yeah no, no other job i don't think any other there's job no other job like it i would say like like, oral sex to diarrhea yeah i'll be Love honest that's, that's keeping a normal, it very normal real day. that's a normal day <laughs> and then we'll go and talk to our colleagues about some other thing yeah yeah while having some chocolates that a patient just brought in it's yeah it's an amazing job i think the positivity is there but don't get me wrong there are hard times i've definitely cried when we've lost patients and i've got close to them or Patients who've come back and said, like, yes, well, I was supposed to be palliative, but actually I'm no evidence of disease three years later. There's a patient who comes in every Christmas, a oh, patient's daughter who comes in every Christmas, and now the patient's granddaughter started to come in. That's how long that person's wow. family, that legacy that we helped yeah. them in their hardest time. Amazing. I'd say as well it's about resilience. 
I would add in a caveat, I never tell my students, don't fall in love with your patients, always fall in love with your patients. That's what we're here for. But I would definitely say that it is about resilience building and actually is something that we can help teach and help support people in building their resilience. And you need that within oncology because it is tough. It is tough. Mm, it's that compassion and boundary thing, isn't it? At the same time, it's quite a hard balance. How does it evolve? I think that was what I heard on the podcast as well. Like, it's changing a lot, right? I, again, completely ignorant, just thought, okay, maybe the machines are a bit updated and modernised, but the actual technique and the actual treatment is sort of the same, remains the same. But clearly I'm wrong. Put me right, would you? <laughs> it is so fast paced. Even within the last year, there have been massive changes. You know, I don't want to say AI because it's one of those phrases now that sends shudders through some people. But actually, AI will change the future of healthcare and specifically radiography. So, diagnostic all the way through to treatment with radiotherapy or radiation treatments but yes the software is massively changing the equipment is massively changing but the technique exactly as you've said katie has evolved so we are so precise now when i first trained as a therapeutic radiographer we would almost put a square box around a tumor and go right let's treat that area now we are within one, two millimetres of accuracy. And that is amazing because the less normal tissue we treat with radiation, the better the quality of life for that patient because you're reducing the likelihood of them getting side effects. And that's short and long term. Radiotherapy is the gift that keeps on giving, unfortunately. So you can have radiotherapy and then 20 years later, you go on to start to develop side effects which people don't associate with the radiotherapy because they think well it can't be that because i had that so long ago but there are lots of late effects clinics now starting to sprout up thankfully across the country and a lot of those late effects clinics are run by therapeutic radiographers again because the kind of likelihood is that it's radiation that causes quite a lot of the late effects and unfortunately, years gone by, our patients would have died as a consequence of their cancer. So we wouldn't see those late effects developing. But because now we're able to cure patients or at least alleviate their symptoms for much longer, and it's almost like you're living with cancer, like you would diabetes, then actually we find that patients need a lot of extra support years down the line. Interesting. God, I didn't know. I often think about the amount of radiation I've had because I did the radioactive iodine sweep, like isolation thing. The PET CT is radiation, isn't it? Yeah, I do worry about that. But anyway. We do get patients who quite regularly will message us going, I'm really scared. I've had like five CT scans and I'm really concerned about the dose that I'm receiving. And I think that's the big thing for us is that we use radiation safely and it's heavily, heavily monitored in terms of kind of what the protocols are. So we would only ever do a CT scan or only ever do um, a radiographic intervention if it is absolutely 
needed. So, you know, the benefit would outweigh potentially whatever it is that potentially that patient has. So I think for patients who kind of contact us, we always say that from a medical referrer perspective, they are heavily regulated. There's no way a doctor can just go, oh, yeah, let's just send them for another one just to be sure, which I think sometimes may happen in America just because of the fact that it's paid. Like, it's awful to say that, but... If anything, the UK, because we've got no money in the NHS, people are like, oh, should we do a CT scan? There needs to be a sweet spot in between yeah. those two places, yeah. doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely does. <laughs> absolutely does. And I think from a cancer patient's perspective, that's one thing that everyone always wants. They're like, I want a scan because it helps reassure me. But obviously, that's the main reason why we don't do more frequent scanning is because you're essentially then increasing the dose that a patient yeah. is receiving. I hear what you're saying. It's true. You kind of, you do want to scan because you do want to know. And you, but you know what I've started to say is like, yes, I need to know what's going on in my body, but really it's about how I feel. That's really what I care about day to day. How am I feeling today? Not getting all caught up with what does the imaging look like and what's the report saying? Where exactly are, the, you know, is the cancer now? And you get almost so obsessed with that. It kind of removes you from the whole point, which is like you want to be living well and comfortably and feeling good. And yeah, that's my little tip for people. Think about how you feel. Yeah, I would also say as well that that's why we need more psychological support within the oncology pathway i think we did a podcast episode around psychological interventions and it it is every cancer patient should have a psychologist everyone my husband and i have had couple counseling with a psych oncologist or i don't know what they call themselves but specializing in cancer therapy basically and it's been brilliant it's been really good and that's been provided by the royal marsden we get six or seven sessions you know, if you are in a relationship, it's like, of course, the cancer is a huge part of like how that impacts both of you. So I agree, you know, whether it's therapy for yourself or as a couple, it can be provided. There's a long wait for it. We had to wait a long time for it. It wasn't even like we felt like, oh, we're really struggling and we need the help. I just thought, you know what, if they're offering this, I think it would be really good for us. So, yeah, I really recommend that. It's been so great chatting to you guys. Really, really good. And I'd love to come on your podcast as well. That would be, yeah, that would be awesome. And yeah, Rad Chat, brilliant podcast. You're on social media as well, aren't you? It's the same handle, at Rad Chat. Rad underscore underscore chat. And yeah, we use the podcast essentially to try and share patient voice, healthcare professionals. We've got... No, and what are all our four themes? <laughs> he knows these off by heart. Living with and beyond cancer, leadership, education and workforce development, and then equality, diversity and inclusion. Wow, you've really done your branding homework. I'm so impressed with that. You've got proper core values and oh, you're putting me We've to got, shame. We're almost at 100 episodes, Katie. That's so cool. Amazing. 100 proper episodes. We've done almost 160 episodes otherwise like bonus episodes and things like that so oh well listeners check it out and I know I've got patient listeners I've got healthcare professional listeners and all sorts so I think it's really helpful for everyone thank Thank you you for the opportunity of being on oh it's lovely to have you thank you so much guys
Oh, that was great. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, check out their podcast, Rad Chat. They're on lots of different social media and their website is radchat.transistor.fm. I'll put all their information in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As ever, do get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think, what you thought. If you've got any ideas, then please get in touch. My email is hello at talkingwithcancer.com and my Instagram is at talking underscore with cancer. Have a great day, guys. Bye.